0: From WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, welcome. I'm Warren O'Dust-Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to a Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Candace Moore Hill on November 30, 2015. Candace tells her interesting story on how she became a Baha'i and how a small town girl from Oregon happened to end up in Chicago working for the Baha'i National Center, starting as a secretary and having a host of jobs, including editing a children's magazine. She also authored the book Baha'i Temple for Arcadia Publishing a photographic history of the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois. She's the administrative assistant for the Wilmette Institute. I started the interview by asking Candace where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in a little town on the south coast of Oregon. It's called Coquille, Oregon. It's spelled C-O-Q-U-I-L-L-E. My parents were from the Bay Area of California, San Francisco and Oakland, They had met each other while going to school. They were both in theater. Uh, They had met each other during a play. I was kind of literally born backstage in a way. My parents were very involved in the theater community in the area down there in California. My father, of course, had to have a job, and he eventually was hired by uh, State Farm Insurance, and they brought him up to Oregon for training. And then later stationed him in North Bend, Oregon, and we lived in the county seat, which was Coquille. The south coast of Oregon is almost all lumber. My town was 5,000 people with a lumber mill on each end. Now, in Oregon, when you grow up and you say you live on the coast, that means you have to see the ocean from your door. But we were about 20 miles from the Pacific Ocean, and we could go over there whenever we wanted. The town was the county seat, so there was a big courthouse in town. There was one high school. Most people worked in the lumber industry. My parents quickly found other people who were artists. and even had some theater training, and they put together a community theater there in Coquille with my father writing the place and my mother painting the stage curtains and the sets and directing the oleos, and they did melodrama in the summer. And it was just wonderful to grow up in the summer and to hang out backstage at a little community theater with people singing and dancing and very funny villains and heroes. And we spent a lot of time in the light booth hanging out if my parents couldn't get a babysitter. You could say that it was a conservative area, a very rural area. It was about as far from any kind of city as you can get on the West Coast. But it was also pretty wholesome, and we were right on the Pacific Ocean, which was really wonderful.
0: Did you catch the acting bug as your parents had?
1: Growing up, no. I went and took theater in high school, and it was pretty clear I was never going to get cast in any play in our high school. (laughs) You know, it's one thing to want to act, and it's another thing when you're with groups of people who are much better than you are. But I've always enjoyed plays. I've always enjoyed theater, greatly enjoying behind the scenes of plays. But growing up with all that, I didn't have to have it myself. My cup was full to the brim. My mother and father continued to be involved in theater all their lives. My mother is 80, and she still does a play every couple of years, which is fascinating to see how she is acting at that age and the roles that she can find. But no, not me particularly.
0: And what was a religious life like growing up?
1: Well, it was very interesting. My mother had been raised Catholic. My father had been raised Methodist. And they had had a Catholic wedding, and my father had had to convert to Catholicism in order to marry my mother. You know, this was the 50s, and there was only one way to do these things. And I remember going to church as a little child. I remember being taken to church by my grandparents. But as soon as we left California, we were no longer members of any church. We never attended a church again. We were never a membership of a religious community, and we never were involved in a church community again. Part of that was because my parents were escaping a very strict way of living a religious life. You know, they were in plays every Saturday night. They wanted to sleep in on Sunday morning. We were a house where we celebrated Christmas, but we never even read the Christmas story in the Bible. (laughs) So we were nominally Christian, and I suppose we were nominally Catholic, and every once in a while a priest or a nun would come and visit the house, but we never had any religious life or expression in our household at all. Now, that caused a problem in a place like Coquille, Oregon, which was very religious and very fundamentalist. And people would say, well, what church do you go to? And it's no big deal, really, if you're an adult. But if you're a kid, kids ask each other all the time in school, what church do you go to? And we would say, well, no church. And that was very upsetting to some people. And we've got many invitations to go visit their churches and to attend their churches, which we did. So there were summers where we went to everyone's vacation Bible school. You know, vacation Bible school was great. There was arts and crafts. It was the summer. They served you lunch. There weren't any other kind of summer programs for people to do other than stay all day in the swimming pool. So I can think of about four or five different vacation Bible schools I went to when I was in elementary school. I can think of having very sincere religious discussions with my classmates, even though I tried very hard at one point to be saved, I never really quite felt like I was saved.
0: And what does that mean, Candace?
1: Well, it meant that I tried, but I didn't feel like I really believed. And that was distressing to me. It just didn't click. Nothing was clicking in the being saved department. And I can remember praying about it. I remember being a little kid. Lying in my bed saying, you know, dear Lord Jesus Christ, I would really like to be saved. What's missing here in the being saved department? Because I'm not feeling it. Because I expected that, that you would have a specific feeling when that happened. And I certainly heard a lot about it from the adults when I attended their churches. But it wasn't happening for me. So then maybe I thought I was an agnostic. I knew I, knew I wasn't an atheist. But then I thought maybe I was an agnostic. There were times when I was in high school, you know, when everybody would be really cool and everything, although I was the least cool person on the planet, where I would say I was agnostic because I would know nobody in my class would know what that was. (laughs) They would say, you were a what? Which, of course, prepared me for the entire rest of my life. You should know I became a Baha'i when I was 15 years old.
0: Well, maybe you can tell that story.
1: Well, it's an interesting story. I've tried to think back, you know, when you get to a certain age, you try and put all the pieces of your life together which kept you on the path that you're on. And I was trying to figure out why I was so world minded. Because I was very clearly more world minded than anyone else my age. I was interested in world history, I was interested in world religions. I knew that there were people of different cultures who spoke different languages in other places in the world. And when I talk about my hometown being rural, I mean it was very rural. There were no people of different colors, different cultures, different languages. It was very homogenous. I mean, I remember seeing the first African-American person I ever saw at a swimming pool in North Bend, Oregon, And being really thrilled that I'd finally seen someone who was African-American. And the only thing that I can think that made me world-minded is my grandfather, my grandparents who were living in California, subscribed me to the Children's National Geographic magazine. And this was the little, you know, eight-page little Children's National Geographic that would come like every Thursday. It was once a week. And I can remember walking to the mailbox home from school thinking, oh, boy, oh, boy, it's Thursday. My National Geographic magazine is going to be here. I can't wait because who doesn't like to get mail? But if you would think about what a National Geographic magazine for children would be is there would be many pictures from all over the world. Africa and South America and Buddhist temples and a Muslim Hajj and Chinese religions and Hindus in the Ganges River. So I just think I must have been more exposed than other people because those images were not in any textbook that I ever had in my classes. So I can remember having a conversation in elementary school, sitting on the elementary school steps with a friend of mine saying, well, how is it some people are saved and some people are not? You can't say that every Hindu in India and every Buddhist in China and every Muslim in Muslim lands are are all condemned because they believe in different religions. And, of course, my friends looked at me very strangely because that's exactly what they believed. So my high school teacher in band was a very lovely man who I liked very much, and he taught me how to play the flute, and I greatly enjoyed playing in our school band. And when we went to high school, his family Moved into town. They had lived out of town. They moved into town. So I was going to school with his daughters, Linda and Julie, and they were Baha'is. They were members of the Baha'i faith. Linda was my same age, and I became very attracted to her, and we were friends, and we sat together, and every once in a while she would tell me something about the Baha'i faith. And I was being agnostic at the time. Then my dear teacher died, and his family moved. And that all happened over the summer. And they just moved to the town nearby, but you know, when you're 14 and you don't have a car and there's no public transportation, you can only talk to each other by the phone. And these were real phones. We had to dial the number and it was a long distance call. So we couldn't talk to each other very much. This would be in 1972 or 73. And she tells me that we had long conversations about religion, which I don't remember at all being on the phone talking about this at all. But I do remember her telling me. Can you come over for the weekend? Can you come and stay the night with me for the weekend? And my mother would drive into Coos Bay North Bend regularly for her job. So, yes, I could do that. I could go for the weekend. And I said, yep, we can do that. And she says, that's great. When you come, we will go to a Friday night fireside. And that's when all the Baha'i people get together and enjoy each other's company. And it's a youth fireside. And I remember thinking, oh, gee, I do not want to go do that. But I do want to be with my friend. So as a courtesy to her, I will attend. So I was over at her house and staying with her in her room and We all got together and we went to the Baha'i fireside. and It was this lovely little home with this nice young couple who had a baby and several other youth, teenagers, people between, you know, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And we had this nice little talk. And they talked about all religions being one and all religions coming from the same God and that nobody was damned and everyone is saved and about the ever-advancing civilization and the life of your soul. And I remember very much sitting in this room saying, these people are telling me everything I already believe. And it was a little creepy, because I already believed this. You know, I like to say that I didn't find the Baha'i faith, the Baha'i faith found me, because I already believed that. Progressive revelation, the idea that God sends teachers to humanity over stages throughout history and teaches us what we need to know at that time, and that these teachers are one and the same with each other. They just reveal holy books and teachings and laws that we need at the time, and all of them are complementary with each other's, the manifestations of God. It just was an immediately brilliant belief on my part. I completely understood it. So I said to them, I said, uh, okay, can you give me a book about the history of the Baha'i faith when it began the very minute it began, the whole entire history of the Baha'i Faith, and they handed me their beautiful hardcover copy of *The Dawn Breakers*, which I know was a sacrifice on their part because I could have disappeared and never returned their book. And is a, a very beautiful, expensive hardcover, extensive volume. At that time, it was a, it was a very special book when it was printed, and I took it home and I read it. <laughs> it didn't take me long at all. It only took like one conference to go to in Southern Oregon and meeting a few more of the Baha'is. And and I signed my card. In the Baha'i faith, how you make your declaration is by signing a card with your signature that just says, I believe in the Baha'i faith and I want to be a Baha'i. And that card is just administrative. That's all it is. They just send it into the Baha'i National Center and it means you get a membership number and you get mail. So they have your correct name and address. And I remember being in my bedroom all alone. I had asked my teachers, uh, how do you make a decision? And one of them said to me, she said, well, I've heard, I was told that if you really, really needed to make a very difficult decision, that you should say the Tablet of Ahmad nine times. It's just a very beautiful prayer. That was written by Baha'u'llah for a believer named Ahmad. And Ahmad was having some real challenges in his life. Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, knew that. So he wrote him this beautiful prayer. And in the prayer book, it's about three pages, which means if you're going to recite it, you have to really want to recite it. But it's a much beloved prayer. Many Baha'is have it memorized. And I had read it before, and I had even been to a little talk about the Tablet of Ahmad, So I knew what I was reading. So I said, okay, I'm going to make this decision about whether I want to be a Baha'i or not. And I have my Baha'i prayer book that was given to me as a gift. And now I'm going to read through it. I'm going to read the Tablet of Ahmad nine times to decide whether or not I should be a Baha'i. And about the third time, in the middle of the third time, I said, what am I doing I'm reading the Tablet of Akhmat to decide whether or not I should be a Baha'i. I I think I'm already a Baha'i. So I I stopped in the middle of the third time and signed my card all by myself in my bedroom. And then I kind of waited, you know. I waited for the light to come down and for the holy chorus to sing and the shining revelation that now I was, quote-unquote, saved. And that didn't happen. And I was much amused with myself. And the first thing that crossed my mind was, well, maybe I'll have to do something more to earn that. I came to the next meeting with my card, and I said, oh, I signed my card. And they're going, oh, yay, yeah." I said, oh, it's no big deal. I did it a couple months ago. <laughs> I believed I was a Baha'i from the moment I signed the card. I was very fortunate to become a Baha'i in the Oregon Baha'i community at that time in the 70s, because there were just wonderful, wonderful people who lived there at that time, and wonderful community in Portland, Oregon, and in Eugene, Oregon, and in Ashland, Oregon. When you would go to district convention, which was an annual meeting at that time, it was the whole state of Oregon. Everybody would come driving for hours. I met delightful, lovely people, which thanks to Facebook, I could still be in contact with, which is very nice. It's one of the things I appreciate about social media. And I was a very energetic 15-year-old, and they were very kind and loving to me.
0: So what was your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i?
1: Oh, they didn't care. You know, I got on the phone. My parents were divorced at this time. And I got on the phone, and I said, oh, by the way, Dad, I think that I want to be a Baha'i. And he says, you can be any religion you want. I don't care. I said, well, but I really want to tell you about being a Baha'i. He says, oh, I don't care. (laughs) And, you know, my father and my stepmother, all the rest of their lives met Baha'is and loved Baha'is and came and visited me here in Illinois. And my dad was so funny. After I came to work at the National Center, you know, the headquarters of the Baha'i Faith in America, he would go to the county fair and he would go to the Baha'i booth at the county fair where there are always three or four very sweet people And, and he would strike up a conversation with them, and and they'd be all excited. And he'd say, oh, by the way, my daughter my daughter works and well met. And they would get all excited and thrilled and interested. He, he loved doing that. My mother was just a little bit more concerned just because she, we had become very good friends with the woman who was my teacher, and she was saying, maybe you haven't met any other Baha'is. Maybe you need to know a little bit more about this. And I said, well, okay. And then what was interesting is a couple of days later, she said, I'm going to take that back. If you want to do this, you go do it. You found this faith. It's interested you. You're reading the books. Everybody we know is a nice person. There's nothing to worry about. So, so go for it. And it's the same thing. She has supported me all our lives and has read Baha'i books. It's interesting that different members of our family have gone in different religious directions. She's a practicing Buddhist now, but she knows Baha'is all over the country. Even my grandparents said, oh, that's nice, dear. You know, I never had any opposition or concern or anything to worry about.
0: Would you say that you got the feeling that you couldn't find when you were visiting Christian Bible schools?
1: Well, you know, everybody when they're 12 or 13 wants to belong. They want to find something to belong to. It's wonderful when you have a church, a religious community. You know, my children have been raised in our Evanston Baha'i community, and they have a network of friends, their age, their parents, other people in the community who know them and love them and support them. It's this family that's beyond your own family, and we didn't have that except in the theater. My parents had that because we didn't have a family church, but then it really trickle down to our to the children, to us kids. So I think as much as looking for to be saved, I was looking for a spiritual home. There was very obvious to me that there were people in these churches, in these religious communities, who were in their spiritual home. They were comfortable. Their worship needs were met. They loved their pastors. Everything was right with the world. Every time I kind of looked for a way for me to be as part of that spiritual home, I just didn't feel it or see it. Now, it might have been different if my family had been a member of a church. And it might have been different if we had lived in a more progressive community, because I remember for the first time here in Illinois going to much more progressive, liberal churches and thinking, oh, well, this is much more attractive and interesting. If I had maybe been in a place like this at 13 or 14, maybe I wouldn't have felt like I was searching. But on the other hand, the Baha'i world community is my spiritual home. You know, Baha'is are very positive, and Baha'is believe in a peaceful, creative future for everyone. For everyone. Not just my church or members of my faith or people who live in my country or people who have my political beliefs, but for everyone. And I think that's the thing that truly called me to the Baha'i faith. I'm not a very devout person. You know, we all know there's people who are really spiritual and you say, would you please say prayers for me? I'm not so great at saying them for myself. I've never considered myself a very devout person, but I'm certainly one with the idea of all religion is for all people. And that's what the Baha'i faith teaches. And that worked for me.
0: Now, how would you say becoming a Baha'i informed your future endeavors into adulthood?
1: I never had really thought growing up that I had a calling or I wanted to have a specific career. You know, I was the oldest child in my family and my parents divorced which was amicable. I mean, it was one of those 1970s divorces where everyone thinks a year and a half later, maybe that wasn't the smartest thing to do, but it was too late. But that was a time when everybody's parents were getting divorced. Again, it was, you know, 1974, 1975. So at that time in my life, I wasn't really the most, even though I was the oldest child, what I was going to be doing after I graduated from high school, wasn't really the first thing on their minds. And it wasn't the first thing on my mind either. Because my parents had divorced, there was not a lot of money. You know, this was a time where there was not the assumption that everyone would go to college at all. Lots of girls got married the summer after graduation. Lots of guys went to work in the mill. The students who were at the top of the class might go to college, and you could go to college pretty affordably in Oregon, one of the universities, but I wasn't one of those people who was at the top of our class. When it became pretty clear that it wasn't going to come together for me to go to university, I decided that I would ask my dad if I could come and live with him in Eugene Springfield, Oregon, and attend the community college there. Because if I lived with him and attended the community college there, I could ride the bus back and forth to school. And that would not have been possible if I had stayed home in Coquille. There was no public transportation and I didn't own a car. And also I kind of saw it as the last chance I would have to live a couple of years with my father. And my father and my stepmother had bought a house big enough that there was always room for one of their combined family of six children. So there was always somebody in and out of their house, going to school, attending college in summers between colleges. And, you know, darn it, we all went to college. I went to Lane Community College, and I enjoyed it very much. And I got straight A's for the first time in my entire life. I got excellent grades, which was a real surprise to me. I didn't know I could do that. But then again, after two years, going on to the university wasn't possible for me. So I began to look into career options. And again, did not have a specific calling, but I took a course called Career Life Work Planning, where we did lots of tests and studies and worksheets and all that kind of thing. And I thought maybe I would like to work in the hospitality industry in hotels because you would meet lots of interesting people working in hotels and host conventions and conferences. Anytime I had attended a convention or a conference, um, In a hotel, I just thought that was really neat. You know, staying in a hotel room is really neat. So I went and investigated that. And uh, Eugene Springfield, because it has the university there, has some very nice hotels. Well, there were all motels, really. And one of them was the Valley River Inn, which is uh, right on the Willamette River. And I got a job there as a night auditor, which is the person who works from 10 o'clock at night to 7 in the morning, finishing up all the reports on the computers and rooms and rates to close the one day and open the next day. And that was really interesting working at night. I got to know every single person who worked in the hotel, people leaving shifts and coming on shifts. And it was very interesting to be the person who answered the phone and who checked people in. And I could see this for myself as a career, especially if you got into events, that other side of the hotel industry putting up conventions and conferences. I kind of imagined that for myself, and I went and tried to get a job in Portland, and I failed miserably. (laughs) I wasn't prepared for the kind of job interviews I was expecting to have, and I came back to Eugene Springfield, and I said, now what am I going to do next, because I'm certainly not going to be a night auditor at the Valley River Inn for more than another year, And I went to a Baha'i meeting, which was a report from our national convention. Every Baha'i community sends a delegate, and that person goes and participates in the elections and elects our National Spiritual Assembly, and then they come back with a report. And I went and attended that, and Ernestine Berkey, who was just a lovely, wonderful Baha'i, who was our delegate, came back and she was sharing all the stuff, all the flyers and this and that and everything, all the stuff. She says, oh, and by the way, Lou Helen Baha'i School is reopening. Uh, Lou Helen Baha'i School is a Baha'i retreat center in Michigan. And it had been closed because all the buildings were falling down. And they had rebuilt everything, refurbished everything, um, repaired everything. And it was going to be reopened after being closed for like two or three years. So they're hiring people, she said. They're hiring people. And I thought, I could do that. I could do that. I could go and work at a Baha'i conference center like Lou Helen. And I could, I got the hotel experience and I could do their front desk and I could greet people. I could do that. So off I sent an application, you know, this 22 year old person from Oregon sending off this application to Flint, Michigan, where I had never, ever (laughs) been east of Oregon to Idaho. I'd been to Idaho. And I was being very emboldened to do that. When I didn't hear back, I called up, the person who was hiring and and they said no 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 we decided to hire someone local for that job and I was very upset and they said but 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 we sent your application to the Baha'i National Center in Illinois thinking you would be really good suggesting that you would be really good for working there and I said well that was nice and hung up the phone and didn't think much more about it until guess who called me who Robert Wilson who you interviewed just last week.
0: Oh my goodness. Oh that's so I funny. Get this
1: phone call on the clear blue sky and it's Bob Wilson. Oh. And he says, I have your application here in front of me and I would like you to come to the National Center and interview you to be my secretary at the National Teaching Committee. And I thought, Well, I'm not a secretary. And he said, Well, you can type, can't you? I said, Well, yes, I can type. I had two years of typing. And I didn't tell him that I was the worst speller in the entire world and was well known by everybody in my family who were excellent spellers, that I was the worst speller in the entire world. And I said, who wants to move to Chicago to be a secretary? And he says, well, I tell you what, why don't I send you a plane ticket and you can visit the Baha'i House of Worship? Have you ever seen the Baha'i House of Worship here in Wilmette? And I said, no, no says, well, why don't I send you a plane ticket and you can come and see it? So I did. On my weekend from work, I said, I have to come on these days, these are the days I have off work as a night auditor. I left my job and I said to my boss, you can't call me in for the next three days. I'm gone. I'm on a plane. I'm out of here. And went to the National Center, saw the House of Worship for the first time on a dreary, gray, cloudy February day where the building totally blended in with the color of the sky, and it leaked in the basement. And then had my interview with Bob Wilson and with a couple other people at the National Center. And before he took me back to the airport, he said, Well, Candace, I would like to offer you this job. We can't have a whole office of people like you at the National Teaching Committee, but we could have one person like you at the National Teaching Committee. And so, you know, as you can tell by my voice, I'm very effusive and I'm outgoing and I speak loudly and I'm kind of a very fun loving person. And so three weeks later, I had sold everything and packed everything and I had moved myself to Chicago, which was a huge shock to everybody. And here I remain. When I walked into the office building at the National Center, I remember walking in the door. It's just an office building. There's nothing special about it. It's on Central Street in Evanston. And I remember walking in the door and saying, this is where I belong. This is exactly where I belong. So what's been wonderful for my life since then, which was 1983, was that working on and off for the National Center has allowed me to explore all sorts of talents and capacities I didn't know I had. You know, situations would come up where there was an opportunity to be creative or to do some research or to write a talk or to write a story where I didn't know that I had that capacity within me until I did it. I don't know if I would ever have had that opportunity back in Oregon. So I'm very grateful to have come, worked at the National Center where, you know, a lot of people have the opportunity to say, well, I think I can do that. And other people will say, well, then why don't you try?
0: So what different positions did you have?
1: Well, I started out as Rob Wilson's secretary when we were still typing letters because this was before computers. And I found out that before I arrived, the rest of the office was told that I would have the self-correcting IBM typewriter. And that was the typewriter that had the little white correcting tape that you could back up if you would spell something wrong and correct your spelling or your typo. And there was only one typewriter in the office and I learned later that there were some hard feelings <laughs> about that, that I got the self-correcting typewriter. I remember learning how to spell very quickly. But one of the things that was great was one of the projects in the office was is that they were going to totally redo the file system and they had bought this new open file system with different colored folders and there were like 12 three-door file cabinets stuffed to the gills with old stuff. And so they needed somebody to go through all of it, throw away, which wasn't to keep anymore, and organize the rest. You know, conference materials here, election materials there, teaching materials there, which meant I looked at every single piece of paper in that office. So because I'm a snoop anyway, I read everything, I learned a lot. After a couple of years, when Bob was no longer on the Natural Teaching Committee, he was no longer secretary, I kind of looked around for something else to do, and the job was opened to do circulation management for the Baha'i periodicals, and it was just the perfect job for me. At that time, there were two magazines. There was the Baha'i News, which came out 12 times a year. That was a magazine. There was World Order, which was a scholarly journal that came out four times a year, And there was one person, one staff person, who managed all the subscriptions, mailed the renewal notices, took care of all the mailing for the magazines, would be really organized with back issues, would answer correspondence, would ship bulk issues of magazines to other countries, would do promotions for the magazines. And this was just the perfect job for me. And I really enjoyed it. I had my own little office and I had all the back issues. And especially since I dealt with back issues, you know, I sat and read every back issue of World Order magazine and nearly every back issue of Baha'i News magazine all the way back to uh, 1920. And greatly enjoyed that. I had correspondence with people all over the world. I have a marvelous stamp collection. And by the time I was done, I was also sending the American Baha'i newspaper to people outside the country. I was handling Brilliant Star Magazine, which was the magazine for children. I was another Herald of the South from Australia I worked with, and also a little uh, newsletter called uh, U.S. Baha'i Report for the Public Affairs Office. So I got to handle all sorts of different kinds of periodicals. And, I, and it was a one-person job. I had no boss. I did it all by myself. I, I really enjoyed that job. And then I got married, and I left that job nine and a half months pregnant. What I did after I began having children is I became the editor for Brilliant Star for two years, having never been an editor for anything before in my life, and greatly enjoyed the opportunity to explain my faith in language and in materials and in approaches that would be interesting to children. Something which, again, I had no experience in doing. I had no teach. I wasn't a teacher. I wasn't. Had no teacher training. I had never taken any writing classes. What's interesting, uh,
0: Candice, you were editor of this magazine while you were having a little child,
1: (laughs) which was really dumb. People have to warn you that there are hormones that go through your bodies at, at pregnancy and childbirth that make you think you can do anything. By the time my son was two years old, it was very clear to me that I could no longer do this job from home, but it was also time for Brilliant Star to grow. At that time, Brilliant Star Magazine had an editor that just got paid an honorarium, and it had the person who did all the layouts and printing and organizing of the structure of the magazine, I'm not thinking of the right name for that, that was also paid an honorarium. It wasn't a real job. At that time, there was a growing understanding that there needed to be a more focused and organized way to do Brilliant Star. So you know that the staff that does Brilliant Star now is four people, four full-time people do what we did, both my my art director and I did for honorariums. But it allowed me to learn how to write for children Baha'i history. Because we wrote articles about Baha'i history and about Baha'i holy days and about individual Baha'is. And I found that I had a talent and capacity for it, which was wonderful. I didn't mention, I'm sorry, I didn't mention that I did go back and get my degree. I got my university degree at Northwestern. And so I finished in the evening division, which was very affordable. So I was a college graduate at that time. And I had done lots of college writing, but I had not done any writing for children. But it came very easily to me, and I had written several children's stories for a brilliant star before I became editor. And then later, when they did some curriculum books that were story collections on the major figures of the Baha'i Faith, the Bob and Baha'u'llah, I wrote some stories for those. So every once in a while, I'll still sit down and write a story. It's something I enjoy doing very much.
0: Right. In fact, you did publish a couple of works on the baha'i temple
1: well i did i wrote one book on the baha'i temple and that's one of those things that came as a result of working for borders books and music you know when the kids got old enough and my youngest went into kindergarten for me to have a part-time job i went right down to our local bookstore and i said you will hire me now for christmas and they said we are and i said yes you are i will come in and be part-time help for you for Christmas because I can do this, that, and everything. And they said, okay, when can you start? And I greatly enjoyed working at a bookstore. I was uh, hired to be the children's clerk. I worked in the children's department. And so I I eventually read everything that was in the children's department. Uh, When you shelve everything in the children's department, you know everything that's there. And I was the story lady. I told stories um, on Tuesday and Thursday mornings to people who would come for stories one of the things that I enjoyed in working at the bookstore was seeing how people of other religions wrote their stories for children. Because, you know, we had a significant section for children that was a, a Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, all sorts of other stories and literature for children. And so I, I learned quite a bit from that. I read everything, brought everything home was, we had our own little Baha'i school here in Evanston and, We had a nice little crop of about 12 kids, all the same age, and I enjoyed using those materials. And there's also were books that we had by Arcadia Publishing that were local history. Everybody has seen these in their bookstores and in their museums. They're Postcards of America and Images of America, and they're for little towns or communities or sports teams. There's a hundred of them for Chicago. Images of America, boats on the Chicago River, kinds of things like that. I had for years had thought that someone could do one of these for the Baha'i House of Worship, that there were enough images and there was enough history of the Baha'i House of Worship to do that. I had known Bruce Whitmore when he had written his book about the Baha'i House of Worship, Dawning Place. And I had gone to his slideshows and I had seen all the different pictures go by. So I knew that there was enough pictures that you could do a photographic history of the Baha'i House of Worship. So it turns out a friend of mine in the Mommy Network in Evanston had done an Evanston book for Arcadia. And it was postcards of Evanston because she was a postcard collector. And she had collected like 200 postcards of Evanston. So she had worked with them to create this really interesting book about the history of Evanston and Northwestern University. And I ran into her at the dollar store one day. And I said, oh, by the way, Mimi, I said, how did you do that book for Arcadia Publishing? And she says, well, I just called them up on the phone one day. And I said, do you need a book on Evanston? And they said, yes, we do. And then that's how it all happened. She says, you, you send them an email. There's an email link. You send them an email. So I got home and I girded my loins of endeavor and became very brave and sent an email to Images of America at their website and said, has it ever occurred to you? To do a book about the Baha'i House of Worship. And I got a phone call the next day, and it was the editor, and he said, Yes, it has occurred to us to do a book about the Baha'i House of Worship. It is on our list of books we would like to do someday. What makes you think that you could write this book? And I said, Well, I'm the perfect person to write this book. I know where all the photographs are, and I can get them. <laughs> So that was just the beginning of that adventure. And I had a wonderful time in the archives, the Baha'i archives, which are in the basement of the Baha'i House of Worship. And I looked at and scanned 600 photographs of the Baha'i House of Worship, the Baha'i community, the construction, Evanston, Wilmette, the gardens, the people that were the engineer and the architect, all those pictures are there. And then after about 600 pictures, I had to decide to write the book. And the nice thing about Arcadia is it sends you a template. It's very easy to structure the chapters and how many pictures will be on a page and the introduction and the contents and all of this. And, of course, I had to prove that I could do that. They had me send them sample chapters and all that. It's a little bit more complicated. I got to explain my faith in 70-word captions because that was the limit for each caption for each photograph in the book, The book has 199 photographs, and I wrote 70-word captions for all of them, explaining the Baha'i Faith in America, which was a real challenge, but it was also a real joy. You can get it at Amazon or at Arcadia. You can get it as an e-book. If you get it as an e-book, you can make the pictures bigger, which is always great to be able to enlarge the pictures. So yes, just that one book about the house of worship, but it it was a real pleasure to work on it. It was interesting to test myself to see what I knew. I was very pleased to realize how much I did know. You know, the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois, is for everyone. It's not just for Baha'is to pray there. It's for everyone to come in and pray there. And it's a very beautiful building. And the people in Wilmette are very proud of the building. And it's one of those places to go and see if you're visiting in Chicago. It has an interesting dual role in that it is there is a place for people to come and pray and people do come and pray there. The Baha'is pray. The Baha'is have devotional programs every day. There's a devotional program. The Baha'is do dawn prayers there, holy day prayers. They do a little bit more elaborate devotional program on Sundays because, you know, people have Sunday off. There's a choir that sings. But then there's also another subset of people who come to visit the House of Worship just to see it. Now, there are Baha'is that come from all over the world to visit it just to see it. I'm giving a tour to a scout group that is coming next Saturday. They're learning about reverence, so their scout leaders are bringing in the House of Worship. There are people that come in tour groups. There are people that just appear There'll be a a busload of 50 Chinese tourists who just appear one day for a tour of the house of worship. That happens a lot. People bring friends. People bring relatives. Lots of college groups come. Lots of groups that are interfaith groups come. Uh, Many high schools bring classes every year. If you're taking a world religion class at Nutriar High School, your class will come to visit the Baha'i House of Worship. So um, there are many people in Chicago that when you say, you know, I'm a Baha'i or I work at the Baha'i National Center, they will go, oh, yes, um, I visited the Baha'i Temple when I was in high school or when I was in college. You know, one of the things about when you're a Baha'i in Oregon, if you say to somebody, I'm a member of the Baha'i faith or I'm a Baha'i, they will go, a Baha'i what? You know, it will be the first time anybody has said that to them. But one of the great surprises when you come to Chicago and you say, I'm a Baha'i. And they go, oh, yes, I was just took my uncle up to your Baha'i house of worship last year when he was visiting. People are very familiar with the. They don't necessarily know what the Baha'is believe. But the Baha'i house of worship is very familiar to them. It's featured in magazines and newspapers all the time. People come take pictures of it all the time. Um, it's very unusual to meet somebody who does not know that it's there unless they are very new to Chicago. So because we're open every day of the year, there's a visitor center and there's a staff, but you can only have so many people on staff and they're really busy. They're keeping the doors open, they're planning weddings, they're planning holy days, they're working with special visits, they're doing all the kinds of things that a a staff would do. And so they have to recruit local people who live nearby to come in and act as guides. If you live within two hours drive of the house of worship, you will be contacted about, would you like to come in and learn how to guide, be trained as a guide, take a turn guiding? And what's really sweet is there are Baha'i communities all around Illinois that will take a day where the whole community will come down and guide. So, like, for example, if people live in Wawatosa, Wisconsin, they might choose a certain Sunday in the summer where it will be very busy. And eight of them will pile in two cars and they'll come down to Chicago and they'll all guide the house of worship for a day. So sometimes it's a lot of fun to see whole groups of people. They might even do the Sunday devotions as well. So there are lots of Baha'i communities all around met. who will take turns guiding. And they're individuals like me. Because I work from home, I can take time out here and there to go over to the house of worship and guide. And mostly, you're just there to show people where the bathrooms are, to turn on the slideshow or the little movie for them to see, to give them directions of how to go places, and then to answer their questions. And everyone comes from a different place in their life. And we'll ask different kinds of questions. So as a guide, you want to meet the person where they are. So someone might come in and be very interested in the architecture and the design and really want to talk about that. Other people will come in and they will have visited the Baha'i shrines in uh, Israel and will want to talk about those and or other Baha'i houses of worship they've seen. Other people will come in and... And they won't want to talk religion, but they will ask you about what you do. They will ask you about, um, well, how Baha'is pray? And what is a program like? And what's your holy day? Is it Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? And those are interesting questions to answer. And sometimes people just want you to take their picture. They're not there for any spiritual experience at all. And then every once in a while, there's someone who gets there and says, I must know everything. And then you you answer their questions sincerely from where they're coming and take them to the bookstore and show them which books they might want to buy. And and we can help connect people with Baha'is in their home community. And then there are some people who come to the house of worship and say, I'm here because I want to be a Baha'i. And then they can declare and sign their card at the Baha'i house of worship and then join whichever Baha'i community they live. You never can predict what will happen any day you're there. When I came here from Oregon... There were members of my family who were concerned that I was moving to Chicago, which was a big city and a city with a reputation. You know, Chicago has always had this reputation as being a city that might be dangerous, that might be unhealthy, that might be corrupt, where the people might not necessarily be very friendly. And that's not true. Chicago is no more corrupt than anywhere else. It's no more violent than anywhere else and has no challenges that none of the other cities and communities in the world have and in America have. But what I discovered about myself, to my great delight, is that I'm an urban person and I love living in a city. Now, granted, I live north of Chicago. I live four blocks north of Chicago, so my address is in Evanston. But especially now that the kids are on their own and enjoying our city very much. My husband and I are in the city all the time. My husband works right in the middle of Chicago in Chicago's Loop. It's a city that has grown and developed and is progressive and is creative and is very beautiful and is artistic and is musical, very musical. And everything can happen here because Chicago has everything. Chicago has... The universities, the craftsmen, the artists, the people who are creative and imaginative, and sometimes I give a talk about my book, about the Bahai House of Worship, and about why it's here in Chicago, and there are very specific reasons why it is here in Chicago. But one of them is, is no other city in America at that time could have built that building. It was unique. It was distinctive. And the city of Chicago had the capacity to do it and the will to do it. The motto of Chicago is city in a garden, but it's also we can get things done. And it was interested and it wanted to build that building and it wanted to be diverse and it wanted to be creative and to try something different. When you think of someone like me who has come to work at the Baha'i National Center and has remained connected With the Baha'i National Center all this time, although I'm no longer a full-time employee, a part of that is also a desire to be here in this great city and to experience everything this city has to experience. So no one should be worried or afraid to come here, to come visit the House of Worship, to come visit Chicago. If you come, I might be your guide.
0: Candace, thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Candace Moore-Hill a Baha'i who has served at the Baha'i National Center for many years and is author of the book, Baha'i Temple. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: Everybody got a story to tell The difference is some people really want to tell it and sell it Try to increase their self-worth Forgetting that it has not changed since birth But we all gonna worry about status, right? It's a never-ending struggle So I'm never satisfied But I'll be the first to strategize Cause in order for the truth to catch on People need to see it work I try to read between the lines and find balance I look around, we're all presented with the same challenge But I can't forfeit, I can't afford it I gotta figure this out before I reach the chorus I mean, pardon me, but I find it hard to see How this mentality first became a part of me This just isn't working so I have to try something But my mistake was trying, never triumphant You see, my power's going into everything man-made But what about the divine source that made man? Cause I got something that I can't sell, can't trade Material wealth ain't what makes you a made man You see, man tends to focus on the task at hand And has lost sight of the master plan And yo, I asked my man, what do you want to be? And he replied, alive And yo, I opened my eyes and saw that transformation Making the most is difficult When all I work for is only changing the physical Holding myself, blowing myself out of proportion Misplaced my portion from the ocean of His grace Super is what He made me to be and vision is what He gave me to see it Says super is what He made me to be Envision is what He gave me to see The blessed beauty remains there for me His glory always present when I share stories It manifests Cause what I gained overseas was a spirit that just took a hold of me See I was told to be free, let my mind clear Now I have a better idea of who I will grow to be And I guarantee that you will notice me Even though you might not even know it's me I know that God gave each a purpose But we all gotta search way beneath the surface to find it Like trying to unearth a diamond That always appears with the most perfect timing But my shortcomings I can't let them show So when it comes to my standards, I tend to set them low Leaving my potential boxed up, stocked up Within me, in a corner, in a room, locked shut I tell myself, yo, this just can't happen Cause I was raised not to just jump on the bandwagon Floating further from myself with every transaction Being tested from Thailand to Manhattan You tell me to stop, when I have yet to start Yet to leave my mark with this thing called art. Too blinded, running around in the dark, I was stopped And guided by my own counterpart, you see He set the example for me to do it He said, you need some help, I can lead you through it Don't need assistance, then I'll leave you to it The only thing I need is to see you do it Because super is what he made me to be And vision is what he gave me to see, you see Super is what he made me to be And vision is what he gave me to see And that's supervision, y'all